Welcome to the A Better Way to Farm podcast, where we share serious secrets about profitable farming. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we hope that you'll love the knowledge we share not only with you today, but also in future episodes. So let's get right into it. Hey guys, Kayla Livesey here with A Better Way to Farm, and I hope you're having a great day because I know I am. I have the honor of introducing our speakers on the podcast today, and I could not be more excited about what we have lined up. Our interviewer is no stranger to the podcast or Facebook. He has been involved in agriculture his entire life, but has spent the past 28 years helping to lower inputs and increase yields on operations across the U.S. He is your friend and my dad, Rod Livesey. Rod, how are you today? Fantastic. Thank you, Kayla. And we are super excited to work with him moving forward. He is a native Illinoisan with a longstanding interest in soil science and agronomy. He has been a faculty member at the UIUC since 1983. There, he teaches introductory soils and two courses in soil fertility. He has been active in research concerning in transformations in soils, the long-term environmental effects of infertilization, and the use of soil testing to optimize fertilizer and management. Today, it is my honor to introduce to our podcast, Dr. Richard Mulvaney. How are you today, Dr. Mulvaney? Well, Kayla, I'm just fine, and I appreciate the introduction. Glad to be with you. Yes, it is our privilege. So, Dad, do you want to talk a little bit about what we have lined up for today? Absolutely. We are going to be discussing potassium and in particular building levels. And I have several questions for Dr. Mulvaney, but before I start, I know that you've done a a lion's share of work in nitrogen, but I also know that you've done an enormous amount of work in potassium and you've worked with another individual. Who is the individual that you did your potassium work with? Yes, I learned about potassium from my good colleague, Saeed Khan. He's from Pakistan and still lives in the area. We stay in touch. And as a matter of fact, he's heading down to Florida in a couple of weeks to give the potassium talk again. <laughs> so it remains a very active topic. So it's a hot topic. I think perhaps, am I correct, that there's maybe more interest in it now than there has ever been? There may well be. Uh, Saeed keeps giving talks, and, and I get uh, correspondence, and, and now we're doing this podcast. So, yeah, it seems to be a, a pretty good ongoing topic. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. I would like to jump right into this. And I guess I want to do a little bit of background because I think if I had talked to you 25 years ago today, you would have been a big proponent of adding (laughs) potassium chloride to the soil. Is that true? Yes, your guess is correct. (laughs) Okay. And now here we are 25 years later, and I'm going to go, you went from proponent to opponent. And let's talk about that journey. Why did you change your view on that? Well, it was years in the making, and I guess I basically had to escape the things I'd been taught. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) that process began to occur when I served on Saeed's Ph.D. committee back about 1990. I really didn't know much about potassium and its fertility back in those days. I had been taught the standard message from the courses I took. It was interesting because it... (laughs) The discussion back then seemed to focus mainly on the wetting and drying effect on potassium testing. And and so dry soils would have higher values and wet soils would be lower. Well, that, I mean, you can only take that so far. <laughs> and, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, 
Saeed was providing some reason to have a new view, but even he didn't fully understand the ramifications of what he was working on and, and the full extent of potassium fertility. We had to discover that together, and we did. When we worked on a very major paper we did back about 2013 on the potassium paradox. So let's talk about that. What is the potassium paradox? Well, basically, in a nutshell, paradox is that farmers have been applying uh, large amounts of this fertilizer in the form of muriate of potash. And the reality is that the soil already had plenty of potassium to begin with, and the fertilizer can actually do some harm and reduce yields. Okay, let's talk about how on an average acre of Illinois or Iowa farmland, how many pounds of potassium are in the top six or 12 inches of that? In the surface six inches, typically on the order of 30 to 40,000 pounds per acre. Wow, 30 to 40,000 pounds per acre. Well, it, it gets better as you go down in the profile because it just keeps adding up. I tell my soil fertility students, and Saeed always explains in his talks, by the time you get down to a six-foot profile, you're dealing with half a million pounds per acre. A half a million pounds. So <laughs> I have a theory, and I'd like you to tell me if you think you can agree with this or not. I have a theory that building potassium levels might be best accomplished by doing everything we can to drive corn roots and letting those roots that get down five, six, eight feet pull potassium to the top, put it in the stock, leave the residue behind and actually translocate it from a depth of six feet to a depth of six inches and keep recycling it. Do you feel that is a practical way to help growers? I couldn't agree more. That's exactly the way the system works. That's how plants exploit the soil for taking up potassium. And, you know, they're living in an ocean of potassium. <laughs> they, they know what to do. <laughs> Absolutely. So we put it out on our Facebook page that some of the guys who we said, what would you like to ask Dr. Mulvaney? And rather than let each one of them call in and have this call be three hours long, we took their questions. And I, if it'd be okay, I'd like to ask you a few of these. Uh, sure. The first one came from Kelly. And he said, "Try. could you explain to us the process of clay aging and how that happened? So clays do age and weather. But in this case, the issue with potassium is the release from what's called clay-fixed positions. And that does occur over time, but it's affected by plant growth and fertilization and so forth. And so what's going on is that the clay is losing that fixed potassium between the clay layers. It's coming out. Potassium okay. is held tightly in those positions, and it has a competitive advantage over calcium or magnesium, for example. But over time, it will be released, and the plant, and is smarter than we are by quite a ways, which isn't saying too much, <laughs> but uh, what happens is that the plant root literally attacks the mineral and can release mineral K and fixed K, and it knows how to do it. How to do it is by excreting acidity, <laughs> Okay. You have the aging of clay through weathering and through the action of plant growth, and the potassium is released from those interlayer positions, and it becomes available for crop uptake. So clay aging uh, is actually a good thing in terms of supplying K to the growing plant. So Kelly's follow-up question was, and I think you started on this, 
He said, so how do we get that soil to release or make available that potassium that's trapped between the clay layers? And I believe what you said was, am I correct? The answer is more roots. Yeah, the plant itself will work to release that K and then natural weathering cycles and the course of seasonal changes will also have an effect for that release. But the plant plays a major role, yes. Okay, and so as the roots grow down, they excrete something that makes the potassium become available that's in between between those clay layers. Right, and what they're excreting, in effect, is acidity. Acidity attacks soil minerals, including those that contain potassium, and the acidity that plants generate is coming in large measure from the process of ion uptake, cation uptake, that releases protons. And they also produce CO2 through root respiration. And the CO2 is a source of acidity in the form of carbonic acid. So that too goes to work attacking minerals and exploiting those. And that's how the plant mines the soil. That's how it gets nutrients. That's, it's in right. the business of extracting nutrients from the soil, and that applies very much to K. You know, it's interesting because there are a lot of words that we've seen over the last 60 years that have been hijacked that actually were good words that now have negative connotations. And one of those, I think, is the word mining. Because anytime you hear someone talk about mining the soil, it's typically someone selling fertilizer talking to a <laughs> farmer about why they should buy a lot of fertilizer, correct? Yeah, that's so true. And I, too, had this reservation for years and years. It had been inculcated by the industry and by, by the courses I'd taken. And we were always advised, oh, we don't want to mine our soil and deplete it and run down the fertility. Well, and, um, there's more to it than that, and especially with potassium. Well, the bottom line is we need to, what we have to do is mine it. We've got to mine it from five, a depth of five feet and translocate it to a depth of six inches. And it would seem pretty to me nice. that I have a friend, Dr. Mulvaney, he says, life's pretty easy. Figure out how it works and get on the right side of it. And <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> it, it is. I, I appreciate Dennis and his advice there. You know, but the fact of the matter is this is kind of that, it's that simple here. We get on the right side of this. We figure out what's the truth, and then we get on the right side of it. That's where we're at. You said that potassium has a competitive advantage over magnesium and calcium. Would you explain that, please? Well, it does in, uh, in two senses that I'm thinking of here. One was in regard to clay fixation. And potassium is subject to clay fixation between the clay layers. And calcium and magnesium are not because they're the wrong size. They don't fit. Okay. <laughs> potassium is the right <laughs> size, and it does. Clay fixation would be one of those points where potassium has the advantage. But there's another side to that story that I didn't know anything about until Said and I did that paradox paper. And that is that potassium has a tremendous advantage for crop uptake. It has special uptake mechanisms. It is taken up throughout the root system. And that is not true, for example, of calcium. Calcium uptake is going to occur only at the growing root tip, and as that root ages and suberizes, no more calcium's coming in there, but potassium keeps on coming. This shook my faith in a subject that I thought I understood, <laughs> but I really didn't. <laughs> and it goes back you know, to the I... issue of nutrient mobility and availability that Roger Bray was preaching in, in his career back in the 50s. And it's been standard issue in textbooks ever since. And the message was 
that potassium is inherently low in availability. It's pretty immobile and it's a limitation for plant uptake. That is absolute hogwash. <laughs> because <laughs> potassium is well known for showing luxury uptake by plants. They take up more of it than they need. Well, if they do that, it must be pretty available. <laughs> exactly. So there's a fundamental contradiction there. And I now tell my students about that. You know, and I, you alluded to this earlier, one of the, I think the hardest thing in the world is to unlearn something. You know, you, the uh, industry has, has beat on us forever. And it doesn't matter what it is. Anything that we've been told over and over and over again, we accept as a core truth, is very difficult to let go of. And you are I think, so right. And I think that's one of the things here. I'm sure you get some students in your classrooms who want to take you head on and tell you how wrong you are about this. Is that safe to assume? Not very many. <laughs> and I've had, some, <laughs> I've had some dads come in to hear some fertility lectures. <laughs> <laughs> so there's an openness so, that is uh, a very good thing. That's awesome, and I love that. I think that's important. That's, here at A Better Way to Farm, Dr. Mulvaney, that's what we are. I tell everybody my number one goal is not to sell you anything, but it's to make you think. And we really push our guys, the folks who listen to us and follow us, to go out and seek the truth. And we encourage them to ask why. When someone wants to sell you something, ask them why you should do it. And if they get angry or they don't know the answer, then I'm pretty reluctant to cut loose a check. Absolutely. So, so talk yep. to me, in the absence of potassium, what would the plant probably take up? Okay, so it doesn't have potassium. Some of the uptake will shift over to calcium and magnesium because they are cations, they're positively charged like potassium, and they can do some of the things that potassium does in the sense of neutralizing the organic acids produced by metabolism. So there are some common functions, and the plant would no doubt increase its uptake of calcium and magnesium if potassium were low. There's a okay. competition. Okay. We have done some work, Dr. Mulvaney, that would indicate one of the ratios that I look at on a grower's soil test is I want to know what is the relationship between magnesium and potassium. Very few people have been looking at that. And our experience indicates that those two can be upside down either way. If we get the mag above the potassium at a rate anything greater than three to one, we're probably getting squeezed because it won't want to take in as much potassium as it should. And we are definitely know that if anytime the potassium level in the soil is higher in parts per million than the magnesium level, that we have a magnesium deficiency in the plant and we need to apply some magnesium to take care of that. And that's been very interesting to unfold. Have you done any work in those realms? I haven't myself, but that idea is very pertinent to our Paradox paper where we did a huge literature mining operation. And uh, <laughs> among that project, uh, we ran into the issue of the effect of potassium on forage quality. Very interestingly, the effect is not good. <laughs> and we run into things like grass tetany, for example, when magnesium yep. becomes deficient due to excessive K. And so that runs against the standard message in textbooks too, that potassium is the quality nutrient. Well, no, 
it can have the opposite effect. But there's something else here I need to bring up that's a real important concept, and that is okay. this issue of K-test levels. I have to tell you, they mean absolutely nothing. Zero, zilch. You know um, you just crushed the dreams of nutrient salesmen everywhere, right? I know, yes, that's true. And of the soul <laughs> testers, they, they didn't react too well with that message. But it's absolutely true. And here's the issue. With these three cations, potassium, calcium, and magnesium, one of them has a secret supply. <laughs> And the other two do not. The two that don't, of course, are calcium and magnesium. The exchangeable fraction is what supplies plant uptake. But potassium has that clay-fixed fraction, which is not measured by soil testing. And also, with all these half a million pounds of K per acre in the six-foot profile, you have lots of potassium-bearing minerals, like feldspars and micas. And it turns out that the potassium from those huge reserves resupply the exchangeable fraction that is measured by soil testing. So here's the point. I tell my students, you can get a K-test done, and it will be a, it's a standard test that's done widely, but it doesn't mean anything because potassium keeps coming from the reserves. You're just getting a snapshot of what it was at one point in time. But it's not representative of what the crop is going to have access to because there's this massive reserve behind it. That's a key point. Yeah, absolutely a key point. So the question becomes, how do we tap into the reserve? I want to talk, i got a couple other things here, if you'll bear with me. One of the things that, that Kelly had asked was, so this being said, his question was, how do we successfully build K-levels? What do oh. you say to that very question? Oh, man. I have to bring Saeed's message to you on that one. And that is, don't even think about building K-levels. <laughs> it, it's not possible to build K-levels. There's too much K in the soil. It's like adding salt to the Pacific Ocean. It ain't going to work. It ain't going to be much saltier. So what you're no. saying is, although maybe the soil test says that we have guys in you know north central Iowa, they've applied boat loads of K. Their tests show a higher level. And you're saying that fundamentally there's about the same amount of K in there there always was. Oh, we yeah. just got to figure out how to get to yeah. it. And in fact, let me mention briefly a very interesting anecdote that we heard from the Growers Fertilizer Solutions people. And that is that there was a uh, farmer in Ohio who had a low K test and he was concerned. So he calls up the fertilizer dealer and boy, they need some potash put on there. Well, he made the mistake of having the field retested. <laughs> and what happened was the second time around, the K-test values came back lower than the first time. And the manager at the fertilizer dealer got all hot and bothered and told the guy who had done it, well, you, you put it on the wrong field, dummy. So he sent him back out. And they put it on again. They're up to a huge rate now. And they retest again, and it goes even lower. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's happening is what potassium does. 
it gets between the clay layers. And now an important point, it collapses the clay. It decreases CEC. And now you're reducing the K test. I want to repeat this. You're saying the application of potassium chloride can actually make a level go down. It can reduce the CEC and it does collapse the soil structure. Yes. Yes. So it, it is reducing soil tilth as it reduces CEC and the K test. Now, this doesn't always happen, but it can happen. Right, right. So I, one of the studies that I often quote was done at Purdue, was published at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm not sure why that was, but that's how it went. But here's what it said. It said that the K uptake for corn to grow 175 bushel corn, the K uptake was about 250 pounds per acre. Now, to move from 175 bushel to 250, the K uptake had to go from 250 to 450. In other words, to add 50% to your yield, you had to add almost 100% to your uptake. That being said, that's not going to be accomplished through the application of KCL. It would be accomplished best by enhancing the root system and figuring out how to have that soil not be collapsed and let those roots go out and do what they do. Is that true? I'm in 100% agreement. Okay. I run across the occasional individual, Dr. Mulvaney. They're just, they're going to put on some potassium. They're absolutely bent on it. They're going to do it. I can't talk them out of it. If that happens, I push them towards, I've always pushed them towards potassium sulfate as opposed to potassium chloride. What are your thoughts on what I've been doing there? That has become my view as well, and it's Saeed's as well. We learned this message when we did the potassium paradox paper. And this pertains to the other part of muriate of potash, the chloride. <laughs> and so the chloride is not quite inert, actually. It's going to have an effect. And one of the things it does, it's going to be subject to plant uptake. The plant takes up chloride, it puts it in the vacuole and stores it. It's an osmoregulator and so forth. But the real key point is, that chloride will compete with nitrate for plant uptake. So chloride helps wow. close the door for the plant to take up the most important nutrient that will build yield. And what sense does that make? And then when it closes that door, it helps to increase leaching loss of nitrate. What a great system. So the farmer comes along, invests all that money in putting on fertilizer in, then he applies the potash, which helps him lose more of the N and get less in the plant. Great, great wow. management practice. For the sales side. For the sales side, not for the farmer, for the sales side. <laughs> well, if you listen to us on uh, Facebook and such, you'll You'll hear one of the things I often say is everything that happens in agriculture is good for somebody. The question is who? Yes. You're <laughs> and so and right. oftentimes, and the sad thing is, I mean, we say that jokingly, but I, it's a core value to me because I believe that a lot of what happens is not good for the grower. It's not good for the farmer. Yep. And our goal is to change that. We want to make sure that, that the farmer comes first, that they, you know, that they get the right information and that they get the truth. And when you have this chloride competing within for uptake into the plant, all of a sudden we're creating our own problems here. I, and Lord willing and you being willing, we'd love to do a follow-up podcast on nitrogen. We're looking forward to doing that here in the near future, Dr. Mulvaney. But we believe strongly that that is a core tenet is to make sure that we're doing the right thing and we're, we're getting the products where we need them. 
I have a, another theory I'd like you to comment on. See, I believe that anhydrous and potassium chloride are the methamphetamine of farming. And the way I say, I say that, I say that because I, I have never taken meth, but as I understand it, you take methamphetamine, you feel fantastic. And tomorrow you have to take just a little bit more to get the same feeling. And the day after that, a little bit more. And it appears to me that in our farming practices, we put on a little bit of potassium chloride and a little bit of anhydrous. And then we got to come back next year and we got to put on a little bit more and then a little bit more and a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, the soil needs a fix. <laughs> yeah, the you're, soil you're right. needs it a certainly, fix. certainly applies to the anhydrous side of the equation. Yes. Okay. And, so it, and we it may are, as well we, okay. Exactly. Dr. Mulvaney, um, I guess that well, one of the things I love about agriculture is it's ever-changing and we're we're always learning. My daughter who introduced us has done science fair work all the way from junior high up through graduation here. She has taught me a lot. And the coolest thing that I find in ag is that for everything that we know and we have learned in the last 200 years, we just scratched the surface. It's an iceberg and the lion's share is still yet to be discovered. Do you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. But I would also add, as I have discovered... <laughs> You know, we used to know things that we don't know now. <laughs> and, and in particular, I'm thinking of the Illinois system of permanent fertility that was developed by Cyril Hopkins over 100 years ago. I talk about it in my fertility course. And, you know, it just seems to me that we need to seriously think about what those guys were advocating and it looks in regenerative agriculture to me like we're drifting back toward that system. <laughs> so what you're saying is my grandpa was right. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Mulvaney, I appreciate your time. It's been an honor to have you here. What closing comments would you have for us? I couldn't agree more that farmers need to understand what they're doing and using and not just take the message that they need to buy something else at face value. I think there's a real place these days for doing for farmers to do their own trials, strip trials and that type of thing. And they can learn a lot as to how much their soil is supplying relative to the fertilizer they might be using. So I think that's that's something that really needs to be done. Fantastic. You're encouraging every farmer to to learn something on their their farm. And we we tell the guys, take 10 acres and do something weird. Drive 10 acres off of the cliff yes. and see what you can learn. Is that good yes. advice? Yeah. Yeah. And in the case of potassium, for example, there's no better test to change the farmer's uh, attitude than to compare with and without fertilization. <laughs> one, and there'll one last be no effect. Yep. Uh, one last comment, and I don't know how, I, I don't know enough about your background to know. We seem to think we see a correlation between the high rates of KCL and that the cyst nematode would seem to flourish in that environment. Do you have anything along those lines that you could comment on that? I haven't looked into that subject in particular, but uh, I I'd mentioned earlier that potassium has implications for crop quality, and the, the effect may not be positive. And actually, maybe I can add one little comment here. And that would be in the issue of competition between calcium and potassium. You know, calcium is such a critical element for building crop health and, and quality. One of the things it does 
is to strengthen cell walls and, and also make cell membranes work better. And that cell wall issue is important for pathogenic attack. Calcium helps the plant build a stronger wall, and that's going to help it to resist the intrusion of pathogens. Awesome. That's, thank you for that tip. Well, any closing comment you'd like to make, Dr. Mulvaney, as we wrap this up? I'm glad you have an interest in potassium fertility, and it sounds like your message is very similar to mine. <laughs> and I appreciate that. I do just, I just had a question come in right now in a text that anywhere I was doing this, and they said, what would you say if the K levels are 70 parts per million, what would you recommend that the grower do? <laughs> Again, I stand on my statement that the Soil K test means zero. So uh, what would I do? I'd ignore them. I'd ignore it. Okay. So do what we can to drive the roots. Let the roots do the yeah. mining the way they're supposed to and go from there. All right. If, I just wanted to make that clear. And if there's any concern at all about getting off the potassium wagon, the farmer should do a little strip trial and compare a zero rate to his standard practice. Absolutely. Well, Kayla, do you have any closing comments that you'd like to make here as we wrap up our call? I would just like to thank Dr. Mulvaney for his time. And I know that I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to listen to everything he's had to share today. And I know that our audience will as well. Absolutely. So I'll just close with this. Dr. Mulvaney, I want to thank you. We look forward to having you on our next podcast as well. And to those of you who are listening to our podcast, if we have triggered some thoughts here and you'd like to talk about them, feel free to contact us at 641-919-1206. You can send us a message or give a call. Or if you would like, contact us on the Facebook page. You can always follow us there with 101,000 of your best friends at A Better Way to Farm on Facebook. Dr. Mulvaney, thank you for your time. We look forward to reconvening soon. We'll be talking to you right away. Thank you and good day. I enjoyed it, Rod. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the A Better Way to Farm podcast. If you found value in this episode, we would appreciate you rating us on iTunes or simply sharing with a friend. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe and tune in next time for serious secrets about profitable farming.